2: To everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, or your journey brought you here, welcome home. And to enjoy tonight's full interview and every single interview we've done for the past few years since the beginning. Just go to veritasradio.com and subscribe don't wait I know you want the truth and if you want to upgrade your life go to sanitasradio.com and listen to what we have to offer there you will not be disappointed I guarantee it and if you want to contact me you want to write with feedback want to be a guest on this radio program or offer a suggestion or have questions I'd love to hear from you go to a veritasradio.com and click on the contact link. Tonight, we have a very special program for you with someone I have tried to have on for years. So I want to thank our friend Greg Caton for helping to arrange this interview. Tonight's special guest is none other than Dr. Patrick Flanagan. We invented the Neurophone in 1958 at the mere age of 13. The Neurophone, a neurological efficiency optimizer, is an electronic nervous system excitation device that transmits sound through the skin directly to the brain. In other words, it accelerates learning at an incredible speed. He received his U.S. patent in 1968. The invention earned him a profile in Life magazine, which called him a unique, mature and inquisitive scientist. Flanagan, at age 11, developed and sold the guided missile detector to the U.S. military age 17 gain his air and instead of continuing to read his bio which would take me a very long time i have placed it on our website but i'll let dr flanagan tell us he joins us directly from somewhere in south america hello dr flanagan and thank you for joining me how are you
0: hi there it's a pleasure thank you it's uh, um well what can i say it, it it's really amazing what we can do today on uh, on um the internet.
2: <laughs> with technology, I can actually put this out there, and in a few seconds, people around the world might see it. But you had a, a storm, or continue to have a storm where you are, so I apologize firsthand to the listeners if we have uh, some trouble with the, the sound. We're trying to do the best we can. We may even get disconnected a few times, so please bear with us. At least this is pre-recorded, so we'll we'll make post-edition uh, changes so that uh, it is as seamless as we can. And I I really don't know where this interview will take us, folks, but I, my inquisitive mind, I hope we can go as far as we can. Why don't we start from the beginning? When I, when I heard that you created the neurophone at the age of 13, but you also had some inventions prior to that. Tell us, well, well hold on before that. I think of Tesla. I was jokingly saying to you that I've had a few people telling me, when are you going to have Tesla 2? And I was wondering why they said that. But then I looked at October 11th, 1944. That's your birthday, right? Yes. And mine is October 18th. So we're both Libra. And then we have a, a Tesla who died on January 7th, 1943. Do you believe that uh, maybe something happened with his soul and you uh, he reincarnated in you?
0: Well, you know, I've, I've come to the conclusion that none of us are separate entities; that we're all part of the universal mind, and that the more we think we're separate, uh, the the more problems we have in the world. You know, uh, th- because I think we're all one on in a level of consciousness. And but when I was uh, a child, uh, I was able to tune into the consciousness of Tesla, and. Uh, uh, let's say Universal Data Bank or whatever. And I told my mother, uh, I said that uh, I said my my real name is Nikola Tesla, and she said, "Who's that?" When I was a kid, and uh, but uh, I I don't know if if I'm a reincarnation of Tesla. I just think that some of us. Will, excuse me for a minute. Just, just think that some of us can um, can tune into the universal communication, you know, universal uh, library, you might say.
2: When you told your mother, when you told your mother of Nikola Tesla, the, the, the name Nikola Tesla, did you know who he was or did you just utter the words?
0: No, no, I just uttered the words. And, uh, and, um, we went to the library and, and, uh, and found the biography of Nikola Tesla. And, uh, but it's not surprising, because when when my son was that uh, this is a crazy, uh, well, it's not a crazy story. It's a true story. But when my son was, um, I named my son, John Patrick family names. And when he was three and a half years old, he said, he said, uh, "Dad," he said, my name's not John Patrick. And I said, Well, what's your name? And he said, My name is Wing Angel. And I said, Really? And he said, yes, and he said, my wife, Smokey, lives in Cocoa Beach, Florida, and I'd like you to call her on the phone. And so my wife and I picked up, you know, we picked up the phone, and dialed information, and got information in Cocoa Beach, Florida. And I asked for a Smokey Angel, and I got a telephone number. And so we called her, and she said, uh, she said my husband wing died uh, you know like 5 years ago and he told me he'd come back to me and so it's so we my wife and i packed up you know our bags and we flew down to cocoa beach florida and uh, the strange thing is as i had a gold rolex watch you know uh when when he was a baby and and w- when he was much younger crawling around he'd grab my watch and and uh he wouldn't let go of it and he'd say mine. And I'd have
1: to peel his fingers off of it. But
0: anyway, when when he told me about
1: that his name was Wing Angel and we called information and found a smokey angel, we went we flew down to Florida to meet Smokey, uh, my wife and, and Wing and, and I and um and so, uh, we arrived at, um, in, in Cocoa Beach, Florida, rented a car, went out to Smokey's house, went up, knocked on the door, Wing ran in and hugged her, and, uh, and then, um, after, after we, we talked for a few minutes, uh, Wing said, where's my stuff? And, uh, so, so she went back in the back bedroom, and she came out with a cigar box, and she opened the cigar box, and the very top thing among all these stuff in the cigar box, the very top thing was a gold Rolex watch, identical to mine. Oh, wow. And so, uh, so that, that was pretty wild. And anyway, so we visited her, and, and then uh, it, he and she would talk about things they did together in his last night. They just talk about people they knew and things they did and all this stuff, and um, so. What did she so say? We, uh, well, she she believed totally in that this was possible. And she said Wayne said he'd come back to me, and so.
2: so was Wayne involved so, with NASA? By the way, since this was in Cocoa Beach.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah.
2: That's what I thought.
1: When he, yeah. And so anyway, so so we, uh, we packed up Smokey, and she sold her house, and, and we packed her up, and we flew her back out to California. We lived in Altadena, California at the time. And um, and uh, Smokey moved into one of the spare bedrooms uh, of the house, and it was a big size bed, and, and, and winged the little, you know, three-and-a-half-year-old and her slept in that bed together and um <laughs> and and then um um if we went to a party you know we all went together and and Smokey was like his his um you know his nanny and um and wing would walk around holding her hand and and when we'd meet people wing would say uh hi my name is wing angel and this is my wife Smokey." no one would laugh and uh So, um, so Smokey lived with us and, and all they did is talk about things that, um, that they didn't, you know, did together. And, uh, so anyway, one day, um, they were talking and, and, um, and, and we were riding in the car and Hawaiian music came over the radio, Hawaiian. And, Mm -hmm. and so, uh, Wing said that reminds me of England. So I, I go, okay, kid. I've had enough of this stuff, you know, about you talking about everything you did together and all that. But this time, you're wrong. I said, that's music from Hawaii, not from England. And then Smokey said, well, we lived in this little town in England, and, and we stayed at this hotel called Ye Olde Philbridge Hotel, and they had a swimming pool where Wing would sit around and read or write, and they played Hawaiian music 24 hours a day around the swimming wow. pool. <laughs> and so this stuff went on and on and then within when wing was um um 13 years old uh he started getting you know like interested. arrested had a little got a little girlfriend in in school and smoky was so upset by the fact that he got a little girlfriend
2: he's cheating that, on her uh,
1: yeah yeah it created a real real big upset and so um we we had to pack Smokey up and we sent her off to live with her sister and and that was the last of it and my son is now forty four years old and and uh, he's married to a Chinese girl and uh, and uh, she's a, a a Christian and Wayne called me up a few months ago and he said that he said. I don't know what to tell my wife because she doesn't believe in reincarnation and doesn't think it's in the Bible. Of course, we know that the Bible's been edited and and things have been, you know, dropped out. And when they sure. found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found some, some things in there that, are, uh, you know, talks about reincarnation. And, um, but he says, he says, he started talking to me. And, and you know, he... I was in a movie called The Outer Space Connection and uh this was in the in the 70s um and and it was um Allen Landsberg was the director and producer of this movie and, and I was in half the movie and, and it was a, uh, um I had written a book called Pyramid Power published in 1973 and it went on to become a uh, uh, a bestseller and I self-published because no publisher, uh, would, would take it. And they said, nah, I don't think anyone would care for your book. So I borrowed $5,000 and I, um, I, uh, published 5,000 copies of pyramid power. I paid for it and it was under the name of a and company, a small publishing company in Santa Monica. And, uh, And so I, I I was able to get 5,000 copies for $5,000. And, and so, uh, I started distributing the books, getting them to bookstores and, and I did some radio shows and things and it took off like wildfire. And I ended up selling a million and a half copies of pyramid power at, you know, $10 a copy. And, um, and that, that I, before that, I had done a lot of consulting for companies and I consulted for, uh, the government for, uh, the, Naval Ordnance Test Station, U.S. Navy Naval Intelligence, uh, the CIA, different things. And, um, during the Vietnam War, we had a, a dolphin communications
2: project in Hawaii. Before you go there, if if you don't mind, I apologize for interrupting you, but I'm, I'm fascinated by the fact that you were in this movie, The Outer Space Connection. Alan Landsberg, I mean, he's known for to a lot of science fiction people. He did other ones, but he always had, if I remember correctly, Rudd Serling as a narrator. Am I correct?
1: Yeah, Rod Sherling was the narrator of of our movie, yeah.
2: <laughs> right, exactly. And it was a, a yeah. basically a documentary that explored the controversial theory that extraterrestrials explored the Earth in the distant path, past. So before right. ancient aliens came to History Channel, there were people like Landsberg and Rod Serling discussing this topic in the 70s, weren't they?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so... So anyway, so the movie was a big success. It was one of the first, let's say, documentary dramas uh, that went into theatrical distribution in regular movie theaters throughout the world. And and for about 10 years, I couldn't go anywhere in the world. Uh, and everywhere I went, no matter where it was in Japan or, or anywhere, people would recognize me and ask me for my autograph. And so, so one day, uh, after we had completed the outer space connection. I told Alan this story about my son wing and he said, Oh my God, Patrick, this would be a multi billion dollar success or multi-million. I think he said, and he said, he said, we've got to do a movie on, on your son and, and we can interview him and we can interview his wife, Smokey. And you know, you know, his previous wife and, and all this stuff. And he got so excited. And I said, At that time, Wing was nine years old, and I said, um, Alan, I said, it's not my decision. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, I said, I have to ask, you have to ask Wing. And he said, he's only nine years old. And I said, you still have to ask Wing, because, you know, he he was talking like an adult. It's his story. Mm -hmm. And so we had a meeting, and and I brought little nine-year-old Wing in, and Smokey, and and my wife and we were in there, and and Alan Landsberg gives him this pitch. He says, "Oh man, you know this this will you'll be worth a hundred million dollars, and and you'll be famous." And he went on and on and on about selling, you know, selling Wing about it. And Wing looked him in the eye, and it brings tears to my eyes because he said that Alan Landsberg. He said no. He said, it's my story, and I won't do it. And um, and Alan Landsberg got so mad at me. He was so pissed that that he never spoke to me again. And, uh, and he even wow. published a book about the movie, and, and he took me right, right out of the book. I was in the movie. Half of the movie was about me. But when he published the book on it, uh, after the movie came out... Uh, he didn't mention me, and because he was so mad that I wouldn't you know force my son to do the story and i today, I don't know if I was right, but it was wing's life and um so I had to honor that
2: did wayne any have any regrets later in life about your decision?
1: I don't know wing wing is you know is a real genius and and he can write and produce, and he's even produced a small film uh, that is amazing um, recently. And uh, and he's, I guess, submitted it to some of the film festivals and things like that. And it's brilliantly done. And I bought him a, a fifteen thousand dollar, you know, Mac computer to edit this film that he wrote. And and it's quite dark, uh, but it it's a very interesting film. And, and recently, anyway, uh, like I say, he called me and he started talking about his past life. And he had written some songs when he was Wing Angel, and he used to play them on the guitar. And I said, Wing, this is a very recent phone call. I said, Wing, do you remember this song? And, and I started singing the first verse. And he, he did five verses. And I didn't even know the other five verses, I only knew a couple of them. And um, so he remembers even now, and he's forty, I guess, forty-four years old, and uh, and and he he's revisiting it. I don't know what happened, like you know, with Smokey and 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 all that when we shipped her off, and and he never talked about it at all for the rest of his life until recently when he called me and. Started saying, "Dad, do you remember when uh, Smokey came to live with us and this and that?" And I said, "Of course." And then, and then I I started to tell him a little bit about it, and then he just finished everything I said. So, he he did not lose the memory of it. Is what I'm really trying to say. He's he's fully cognizant of it uh, even now.
2: Yeah, because usually people. I remember having a similar situation when I was young. My my parent, my parent, family immigrated from Cuba, and I had a, a great aunt walking with me on the street and in, in the Caribbean, in another island. And I was looking at this very large house, and I said, that house looks a lot like your house in Cuba. And she started crying, and I said, why are you crying? Wow. And she said, because that looks just like my house there. So ever since, I wonder, I wonder. And I also wow. I grew up a, I grew up a Catholic, uh-huh. a Roman Catholic. And I always wonder why, why they decry anybody who talks about the possibility of reincarnation. And what oh, your God. son is saying, you, you would think that it would leave him after he's... Because uh, usually you become ridiculed at a young age. And then you, as a defense mechanism, you forget. But obviously your son has right. not forgotten no,
1: he hasn't. And, uh, here, I have to, I have to blow my nose just a second. Sure, sure. Okay, I'm back. So,
2: And by the way, I didn't, very... I didn't mean to make yeah. you uncomfortable.
1: Oh, no, no, no. It's okay, because, uh, I'm, I'm not uncomfortable. It's just the, the memory of it and what we went through and how powerful it was to our own consciousness and mine. You know, like when I told my mother I was Nikola Tesla and, uh, but I, uh, in, uh, the thing is, I was a child prodigy in electronics. And, and when I was eight years old, I, was, uh, I had a general class ham radio operator's license. I built all of my own equipment, designed it myself, vacuum tube transmitter and receiver circuits and antennas and all of those things. I even built a ham radio Tesla coil when I was uh, 11 years
2: old. And, well, what training did you have? By the way, may I call you Patrick. Yes, sure. Thank you. How, how because at eight, eight years old, you're probably what, uh, you know, second grade perhaps. What training did you get in order to, for you to, to do all of this?
1: I had no training. It was all memory, past life memory. It was all memory. I channeled everything. Uh, and of course, my, my father. Uh, was a geologist for Shell Oil Company, and we traveled a lot because uh, he was uh, looking for oil fields uh, in uh, North Dakota and Montana. And uh, and I was born in Oklahoma, but we we moved to um, Montana, North Dakota, early in my life. And uh, but my my father is not technically or was not technically minded at all, and. And years later, when I was uh, 17, 18 years old, my father begged me to please teach him Morse code and um, and about ham radio and how to design antennas. And my father went ahead and got a ham radio license uh, when I was about 17. But I had all this uh, from my own memory. And when I was... Um, about the same time, eight years old, I I had a series of recurring nightmares. And uh, in the nightmares, I was flying an airplane, single engine um, airplane over the Pacific Ocean. Um, And I don't know, I just knew it was the Pacific Ocean. Anyway, I was flying this airplane and the engine started uh, stuttering on me and cutting out. And I saw an an island in the distance with just a few palm trees and a big, wide, stretching beach. And so I tried to put out a a radio call for help, and I landed the airplane on the sand. And night was approaching, and I didn't have a flashlight. And I opened the cowling uh, very clearly in the dream of the airplane. And I looked at the engine and decided I would have to wait till the next morning. And so so uh in the dream i was sitting on the beach and uh and as the waves were coming in it was warm and and i saw a light in the distance coming toward me and and i thought oh uh that's a, a search you know airplane looking for me and so it got closer and closer and closer and then the light turned into a, a flying saucer and the dream and and it landed on the beach and it had tripod legs and a and an invisible door opened on the saucer and some people got on and they were carrying, um, what looks like today, a laptop computer. And they had a, a helmet that looked like a football helmet and it had little silver, um, looked like electrodes all over the inside of the helmet. And they put the helmet on my head and they opened up this laptop computer and they had a table there with legs that folded down. And, um, And I said, what are you doing? And they said, we're measuring your knowledge and intelligence. And, and I said, why? And they said, they said, they said, if you don't have enough knowledge or your intelligence is not high enough, we're going to destroy everyone on earth. And then, and then the dream ended and I'd wake up, wake up screaming and crying. I was only eight years old and, uh, this recurring dream occurred every night. And and uh, the only thing that made the dream go away is when I read as much as I could read, when I absorbed as much knowledge as I could absorb. And so I started reading prolifically. And by the time I was uh, 14, 15 years old, uh, I was clocked in school reading uh, 14,500 words a minute with ninety-five percent comprehension. Wow! So, um, and I read—I uh, literally read uh, thousands of books and hundreds in my life, and um, and but that that got me really going. And then, uh, let's see. So when I'm um, when I'm twelve years old, uh, we had moved from Billings, Montana to Houston, Texas, where Shell Laboratories were located. My father was uh, assigned to teaching geologists who had graduated from college how to recognize rock formations and plants and things that would indicate oil underground. And, uh, and so, uh, we had just arrived and, and I'd been in school, uh, in, at a, this, uh, it was called Jane Long High, uh, Junior High School. Um, and, uh, so we'd been there three months, and they said uh, science fair is coming up in, in two months and uh, or whatever it was, and anyone that wants to enter the science fair should uh, put together a science fair project. And it was for all grades from, uh, I guess, junior high school all the way through college. And so I got this idea for... Um, because there were a lot of atomic bomb tests going off uh at that time and and a lot of ICBM missile tests and stuff like that so i decided to build an atomic bomb ICBM detector <laughs> and i had this whole idea so i i built my invention you know my device and i was able to to record exactly when and where atomic bombs were tested anywhere on Earth, and also what time it was and what date it was, and when they launched ICBMs for missile tests. And so...
2: How was the data coming? For example, uh, Trinity, Trinity, uh, on April, whatever? Yeah,
1: (laughs) yeah. no, I'll tell you. Um, What it was is is that by the time I was 12 years old, I I had studied... uh, at, with my memory as Tesla or or whatever I was able to get from tesla's mind or whatever anyway um, i I had built some very powerful high voltage electronics equipment and I had been studying plasmas elect, electronic plasmas or ionized gases and and I noticed that when when I used different uh combinations of, of of gas and things that when when i created an arc and a plasma that would interfere with my ham radio receiver and would interfere with television and everything else and uh, and so uh what i i figured out is is that when a when an atomic bomb explodes it generates a super ionized plasma containing not only the the material the bomb was made of but also um, a super ionized atmosphere
2: you know positive ions yeah yeah
1: and 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 what happened is that this column of gas goes straight up in the air and and it acts because it's highly conductive it acts like a vertical radio antenna and so what i did is i built a receiver that would detect those ionized gases the frequency range of those ionized gases with a radio direction finder and i used that to do, and also the same when when a missile goes off the missile forms an ionized gas trail. trail It's like a vertical antenna and 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 because the, the frequencies are extremely low we're talking about in the audio range that those uh, uh, that those radio frequencies will circle the earth and and every time they circle the earth they, they lose less than three decibels of energy which is a small amount of energy and and so I was able to radio direction find, and and by listening with headphones because I had this thing on all the time and so when a test went off I'd hear it and and I would uh, you know locate it and and there was a big difference between an atomic bomb explosion and a missile being fired. A huge difference. And so I made up a—I entered the science fair, made up a thing, and uh, and I won the whole science fair over college kids and everything else. How and, old were you? Uh, Twelve years old. Twelve. <laughs> and so, yeah, and so then what happened is that the Houston Post and the Houston Chronicle uh, reporters came out, and they—, they they put my uh, my win of the science fair on, uh, you know, the wire services, right? And, and the next day, I was on the front pages of newspapers all around the world and things like that. And so I'm sitting in study hall. This was on the weekend. So on Monday, I'm sitting in study hall, and the principal uh, uh, comes on the school loudspeaker, and he said it was Patrick Flanagan come to my office immediately the Pentagon is on the telephone <laughs> <And> so <laughs> so I went went to the principal's office and uh, and there was a, a four star general from the Pentagon on the phone and he said he said how did you know when each and every one of our tests went off at meeting time and I, I I told him I said about this thing and so the uh, Wright Patterson Air Force Base sent down uh, a uh, a group of fifteen scientists and other people, security people, to my home, and and they packed up my missile detector and everything, and they took it off with them, and they made my father sign a uh, a, a non disclosure agreement that if if I t- told anyone outside of an authorized government personnel how this thing worked and the details about it and and if if I did so um that the government would take me away or, or my father did so, the government would take me away and my family would never see me again. So what happened what happened is is that um when I was 17, uh, by the way, I consulted with the government on the device by mail. Um, but when I was uh, 17 years old, uh, I got a call from this thing. It's called the Gold Plate Award, and it was out of Washington, D.C., and they called up my mother, and I had just been in Life Magazine. When I was 17, Life Magazine did an article on me and my invention of, the, of this phone device
2: they didn't Taylor get one too for the atomic bomb?
1: Yeah, yeah, Taylor did. Yeah. So what happened is that they said we want to give you a gold plate, and, and it's very prestigious. And it was um, on uh, let's see, December 29th, nineteen sixty two, at the Del Webb Ocean House in San Diego, California. And so we drove out to Texas uh, in in what in my car because. Uh, I uh, by consulting, I'd made enough money to buy my own car, a uh, brand new Pontiac. And, uh, so we drove out to, to, uh, California and, and I received this award and, and also receiving the same award as me was, was Edward Keller for inventing the hydrogen bomb, Murray Gell-Mann for discovering the, the structure of, of viruses. And, um, uh, a uh, Wendell Stanley who won the Nobel prize in physics and also sitting with me was Admiral red Rayburn who got the same gold plate award for inventing the Polaris submarine. And also there was a, um, well, there were a couple other people there. Oh, Oh, secretary of state, the secretary Kerry of state, uh, who had been a former, uh, uh run the uh, bell and hell. And, uh, And so we were all getting the same award together and there was a great big naval uh, Navy honor guard and, and all the press and all this stuff. And so, so, um, it turns out that Admiral Red Rayburn was director in charge of the CIA at, at that time. And so, um, he said he wanted to have a meeting with me and Pete Peterson, who was the secretary of state. So, so, um, they had a private meeting with me and my family and they said, uh, uh, Admiral Rayburn said, son, we want you to go to college and get as much knowledge as you can. And it doesn't matter what, it doesn't matter where in the world you want to go to college. You if you want to go to college in Russia, we'll get you in. And he said, and, and we want you to learn as much as you can. And when you are finished, um, we want you to, uh, sign a contract that you will work for us for five years and then we'll let you go do what you want to do. And then, uh, I, I was very excited because he was head of the CIA and I love James Bond on his show. uh, (laughs) But, but when uh, all, all my scientist friends, I said, I'll let you know tomorrow. And I called a bunch of my scientist friends and, they said, "No, <laughs> they'll never let you go. Don't do it. Don't do it." So, so I told. Uh, by then, I, as a consultant, when I was seventeen, I was making more money than my father, and uh, and he had seniority at Shell Oil Company. And so, at any rate, what happened is is that I told Red Rayburn. I said, "I won't do it. No, because I don't." Oh, oh. They also offered me a. a Uh, This is 1962, they offered me a $165,000 a year year allowance, in addition to paying all my expenses, which is a lot of money, even even today. And so, um, uh, I I said, I won't do it, and he said, son, would you work for me on a favor basis? And I said, what's that? And he said, well, he said, if anybody ever gives you a problem in government or otherwise, you call me, uh, call the CIA and ask for me, and I'll call you back within 24 hours. Leave a message. So one of my patents was put under secrecy. It was one of my neural phone patents, and, and the government did the same thing they did with it as they did with the missile detector, they said.
2: By the way, $162,000 in, what does he say, 1962? Yeah. That's one point, almost $1.3 million today. Oh, wow.
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. So, Red Rayburn said, uh, said if I ever have any problems, uh, you know, to leave that message, and so what happened is that m- one of my neurophone phone patents was put under secrecy, in the same way the missile detector was. And, and so, one night, I got tired of it, and I, I called the CIA, and they said, I want to leave a message for Red Rayburn. And I said, never heard of him. And I said, he was d- the third director in charge of the CIA since it was established. And he said, still never heard of him. And I said, well, he told me that I could leave a message for him here and that he'd call me back within 24 hours. By that time, Red Rayburn had gone over and was a director in charge of the NSA. And so, uh, he, the guy said, you can leave a message for anyone you want, but I won't guarantee you they'll ever call you back. So I left a message for Red Rayburn, and for less than 24 hours later, he called me back, and he said, um, what's your problem? And I told him I want to get my patent out of secrecy. He said, done. He said, it'll be released within two weeks. And he said, but I've done you a favor, and he said, now you're going to owe me a favor. And he said, no matter what I ask you, you have to agree that you will do whatever I ask you to do, which is pretty crazy. But I said, okay, I'll, I'll go along, along with it. And so, so two weeks later, my patent was released from secrecy. And then Red Rayburn asked me to do a favor for him, and I can't tell you what it was. But it wasn't anything illegal, I can tell you um, but um I worked with uh with Red for years that way, and he became a very good friend of mine and uh and I was very disappointed when he died because i, I, I was thinking, not
2: too long after nineteen sixty six that's when he died, right
1: yeah, so at any rate uh he he was a really good friend and, and, and his sister called me after he died and, and and his sister became a friend of mine for years and years and years. But that's my life and but, but when I when I published Pyramid Power I was able to stop doing government work. I was able to stop doing all of that stuff because I, I made money off off the book and uh, Anyway, one night, one night I got a call from uh, the CIA, and, and I said, uh, I just have to tell you something. When you published Pyramid Power, it was the best thing you ever did. And I said, why? They said, they think you've got off the deep end, and they've loosened the chains on you. <sighs>
2: loosen the controls. <laughs> well, they thought you were crazy?
1: No, no, but, you know, the pyramid power is about, you know, building pyramids and sleeping in them and, and, uh, it being like a resonant chamber and, and that when you put food in the pyramid, it becomes, it doesn't rot. And, yeah, it doesn't rot, yeah. You know, and things like that. And, uh, and it's very esoteric. I mean, it's very new age. In fact, my son told me that pyramid power started the new age. But I, um, I don't know. But at any rate, um, apparently it was good because they were they were really watching me very closely. Yeah, I have a lot of stories about that, but uh, I'm not so sure what I tell all of them.
2: <laughs> well, I understand that because you work for these alphabet agencies for so many years that there are certain things that you cannot discuss. But are there any yeah. things that you have not discussed in the past that perhaps have been declassified or you're able to speak about them?
1: Well, the thing is, that when I was um when I was uh, 18 years old, 18 and a half, uh my mother uh, for some reason decided she wanted to have me drafted to Vietnam. And uh I guess cuz I was uh, so different.
2: <laughs> 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 and um she so wanted you to be drafted
1: Yeah, she called up the draft board to send me to Vietnam to make (laughs) a man out of me. Okay, and um, I I think she thought I was gay because I, uh, I, I was one a world class gymnast and and I'd go to the gym and I'd work out with weights, you know, and and I became one of the top gymnasts in the world, at least in the United States, and. uh, and she was serious. She wanted to send me to Vietnam to make a man out of me. And mm-hmm. my mother was very, very fearful about gays. And, uh, I, I wasn't gay, but, but, you know, she had her suspicions or whatever. So she, um, and, and so I, I'm in college and, and, uh, there was a girl in psychology class and her name was Lila. And, and, and we were kind of flirting with each other in class. And, uh, so I invited her out on a date, and so we go out on a Saturday night, and uh, and we start talking about how restrictive our parents are. You know, she's 17 years old, and I'm 18, and uh, we decided the only way we could get away from our parents was to get married, and so I went home, and she went home to her family, and we announced that we wanted to get married the following weekend, one week later, after just one day. And my mother was, was just thrilled. And so she said, Oh God, that's so wonderful. So so our parents had to sign the marriage certificate because we were underage. But uh the following Saturday, one week later from our first date, we got married at Methodist Church in Ballard, Texas. And um and and it changed my draft classification. Uh, so that I wasn't going to be, you know, my mother actually called the draft board, but it changed it, and I went to work for NASA uh, right away after we were married at uh, on the Gemini space shots, and uh, I became one of the engineers that worked on that on that space shot out at Clear Lake, Texas, and so. Um, we were together for eleven years, and it was amazing. I mean, we didn't even know each other, and uh, but we we had two beautiful children. I had a, a, uh, my son Wayne, and he still goes by Wayne, not John Patrick. And and
2: uh, oh wow, so he's using the name his his past life name. By the way, how did Wayne, the original Wayne in Florida in Cocoa Wayne. Beach, how did he?
1: W I N G,
2: wing. A wing, wing. W I N G. I'm sorry, wing. How did he die? In his past life. Yes. Um,
1: we. He he tells me that 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 someone killed him on purpose, and Smokey suspected he died of a heart attack. Yeah. Uh, and and he wasn't that old, and uh, and Smokey said that he had upset a lot of people, and. And my son, you know, he's a rebel just like I am and and super intelligent and uh, I mean this lifetime. But um he wasn't finished and uh and so and, and and he and he and Smokey both believed in reincarnation so so they had discussed, you know, if he died, he told her, you know, if if something happened to him or he died suddenly that he'd come
2: back to her. How old was Wing when he died, you know?
1: I think he was fifty eight years old, something like that. Okay. Fairly young.
2: And your son still remembers the do you think your son remembers and perhaps continues the mission that Wink had?
1: Uh well, I don't know. Uh when when um, when he was reborn and, and and we got hold of Smokey, Smokey was in her early sixties. And um, I think he is continuing the mission that he had before. Uh, but, um, yeah, you know, you don't have to... I don't know if he'd be willing to talk about this, but at any rate...
2: Um, if he ever does, if he ever does, I would love to yeah. to speak with him. But the neurophone, how did that happen?
1: Okay, well, a strange thing... Um,
2: Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important Veritas interview. If you enjoyed it and wish to listen to the rest, go to VeritasRadio.com, click on Members, or Subscribe. Or tell someone else who will enjoy this and all our radio programs. If you are listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, where you can purchase pure organic sulfur, earthing and grounding products, supplements, a USB drive with all our shows, gift certificates rebounders, and much more. Now, we'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the Veritas member section. Enjoy!